You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning, good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor of Sojourn Church Carlisle. It's indeed a great privilege and pleasure to be with you here this morning. If any of you know my story of this week, it is indeed a miracle that I'm here with you, but I'm thankful to God um, that he is able um, to heal us and to redeem us and to comfort us um, in our times of uh, isolation, in our times of uh, <clears throat> needing him to draw close. Have you ever hit rock bottom? I mean, no, no, really. Have, have you ever hit rock bottom? I have, uh, but most recently I experienced the rock bottom experience even this week. <clears throat> you see, within the past uh, eight to ten weeks, my life literally has been turned upside down. My wife, Catherine, about three weeks ago, uh, was diagnosed with pneumonia. Uh, we thought she had COVID, but she didn't. She isolated herself in the basement for seven to ten days, trying to get well, taking three different tests at three different times within that time span, trying to find out if she indeed had been affected with this notorious disease that we call uh, COVID-19. In the meantime, I tried to serve as Super dad, <laughs> being the caretaker for my kids, providing for meals, having a lot of joy as well as a lot of tears, <laughs> while still trying to maintain my responsibility at work and even at home. Even within the past week, my daughter um, had been quarantined for the last seven days while she recovered from having contact with someone who po- tested positive for COVID-19. And Monday was her birthday. <laughs> And she spent her 13th birthday in our basement, us celebrating with her over Zoom, literally placing a cake before her that she couldn't taste, she could only see, and we had to blow the candles out for her. She had a lot of things canceled in her life. She was going to play Rafiki in the school play for Lion King. That was canceled. She had three basketball games in one week that she was really excited about to play in, but those were canceled. (laughs) And as I've said before, as a result, as a dad and as a father, and even as a pastor, I had a a rock-bottom experience. Now, I don't want to pretend that everyone's rock-bottom experience is all the same. For Adam and Eve, it was being exiled from Eden, from Eden, excuse me, from Noah, it was building a boat on dry land. For Abraham, it was believing the promise of a son without having the ability to have one within himself. For Sarah, Rachel, Rebecca, and Hannah in the scriptures, it was longing. It was a longing of a child without the biological means to bring their desires into fruition. For Daniel, it was being thrown into a lion's den. For the Hebrew boys, it was being thrown into a fiery furnace. For King Nebuchadnezzar was losing his mind and eating grass like a cow. For Esther, it was speaking the truth to prevent the genocide of her own people. And to her own husband, the king, 
even though he had not summoned her to come forth. For Peter, it was denying Jesus on the night of his crucifixion. For Paul, it was a mysterious thorn in the flesh in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And then for John, it was being banned into isolation on the Isle of Patmos. Let me ask you again, have you ever hit rock bottom? Let me ask you maybe a a different question in a different way. Maybe your rock bottom isn't having your family quarantined or having your daughter miss her birthday, but let me ask you this question. What does your rock bottom experience look like? If you could describe it, what what does it look like? For you, it might be a phone call that informs you of tragic news about someone you love. For you, it might be someone who you love getting COVID-19 or battling through it. It might be a financial distress and turmoil within your job. It might be unresolved marital issues. It might be even related to continued problems with your romantic relationship. It might be a betrayal from a close friend. It might be a denial from a promised opportunity. It might be the disappointment of not having unspoken expectations fulfilled in your life. What does your rock bottom experience look like? I was amazed because this week on Facebook, I saw this quote and I want to share it with you because I think it speaks to the reality of a rock bottom experience. It says this, it says, rock bottom will not only show you who you are, but it will show you who you're not. Say that one more time. Rock bottom will show you who you are, but it will also show you who you're not. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for this preaching time. We ask that you would take my feeble, feeble effort, Lord, to preach your, your perfect and inspired word and glorify yourself. Let your word go forth and not come back void. Let our minds be changed. Let a mind be changed. Let a soul be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. As always, God, take my little and make much of it as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So two weeks ago, Brad House reminded us of, G- of Judas's rock-bottom experience. He said that Judas' betrayal was more of a denial than a betrayal. In other words, Judas' betrayal was his feeble attempt to switch up to a winning team, <laughs> much like Kevin Durant in the summer of 2016 when he switched up from OKC to the Golden State Warriors. I personally don't have a problem with it, but I know a lot of us do in the room, and that's okay. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with one another, and if even if we're honest with God, some of us might be ready to switch up from God too. Some of us may be tempted to give up on God because God has not fulfilled our desires or we feel like we're in a rock bottom situation, feel like we're in a situation that God has placed us in, and therefore the temptation remains for us to maybe give up on God. 
If that's you this morning, let me remind you of a scripture verse in James, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It says this, it says, no one undergoing a trial should say I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Beloved, if you are on the side of my voice and Satan has been tempting you with your rock bottom experience to give up on God, I have a word for you today. Don't, don't give up on God. And I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why. You see, we'll see two things today in our text. We'll see, number one, we'll see who Jesus is at his rock bottom experience. Who is Jesus? You know, you really don't know a person until you met them in their rock bottom experience. (laughs) When all the glitz, when all the glamour, when all the accolades, when all the privileges are taken away, when all the things that, 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 that they can hide away from, money or fame or family or friends, these things are taken away or maybe put aside temporarily, we really get to see who we are. And today, we'll be able to see more clearly who Jesus is at his rock bottom experience. Number two, we'll also see who Jesus is not. We'll get an understanding of not just who Jesus is, but we'll also be able to see who he's not. So let's start first things first. Who is Jesus at his rock bottom experience? The number one thing we see is that he is our sovereign God. He is our sovereign God. That means that Jesus is the God man. And as the God man, he's fully God and fully man. He's not half God, half half man. He's not half man, half amazing. Like the dunker back in the N1, N1 things back in the day. Maybe somebody might get that. I don't know. But I remember half man, half amazing. Thank you for laughing at that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. I appreciate it. Jesus is a God man, and he joyfully maintains his sovereign control over every aspect within creation. Wayne Grudem defines God's sovereignty as such. He says this, that God's exercise of power over his creation. That is the definition that theologian and author Wayne Grudem gives to us for God's sovereignty. It is God's exercise of control over all his creation, meaning that God is described as existing eternally, as being the creator, as being knowable, independent, unchangeable, omnipresent, omniscient, all-wise, all-good, all-loving, omnipotent, and even, yes, sovereign. It's a good reminder for us this morning That God's sovereignty means that he not only holds the power to control all things, but more importantly, he controls all things. Every situation, every person, every decision. And in today's text, we're going to see three aspects of God's sovereignty made manifest before us. 
And we're going to see three things about this sovereignty. Number one, that Jesus maintains his sovereignty even when we think we're in control. We're going to see that through the person of Judas. That's verses 47 through 50. We're going to see that Jesus maintains his sovereignty even when life seems to be out of control. That's seen through Peter and the disciples, verses 51 through 56. And then lastly, we're going to see that Jesus maintains his sovereignty even when you seek to maintain control yourself. We're going to see that in verses 57 through 68 with Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. Look with me to the first aspect of God's sovereignty in verses 47 through 50. It says, this this reminds us that Jesus remains sovereign even when you think you're in control. Look with me in verse 47. It says, while he was speaking. Now stop there for a minute because that, that should put a pause in our spirit to remind us of what Jesus has already said. In verse 46 from last week, Jesus was praying, to hit, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in verse 46, he says these words, Get up, let's go, see my betrayer is at hand, or my betrayer is near. So while Jesus is telling his disciples, his sleepy disciples who have been sleeping, when Jesus asks them to be praying with him, he tells them, get up. And let's go meet my betrayer. I don't know about you, but that speaks to the sovereignty of God. The fact that Jesus is praying, no one knows knows where he is except his disciples. He brought three close disciples, his three closest disciples with him. He's alone in prayer. And because Jesus is our omniscient God, he knows that his betrayer is near, even when his betrayer is still looking for him in the garden. Verse 47 says it this way. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived. Notice what Matthew says here about Judas. He's one of the 12. He's reminding us of the closeness, a close association that Judas had with Jesus. He's also reminding us that Judas had decided to switch boats or to switch teams. You see, whenever we experience a rock-bottom situation, we always have a choice. (laughs) And Judas' choice at this point was to jump ship. Judas saw and and believed that Jesus' ministry was done because he knew that people wanted to kill him, and he saw himself as the missing link to be able to allow Jesus to be confronted with these men and obviously healed. So Judas, in his mind, he thinks that he's in control. But as the scripture unfolds, we see that actually he's not in the one in control. Jesus is. Verse 47, while he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chiefs and the elders of the people. Verse 48, his betrayer had given them a sign. Now notice the sign. The one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. Now why would Judas have to use a kiss to identify Jesus. Well, there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, remember they're in a garden. They're outside of the city. They're in a very dark place. You can't really recognize faces. There are a lot of people who are coming, and some people may not even recognize who Jesus is. So Judas takes upon himself to say, the one whom I kiss, the one that I put my lips upon, he is the one whom you need to kill. 
I need you to catch this because in the, back in this day, a kiss was not meant for a sign of betrayal. A kiss was actually meant for a sign of friendship. It's actually, it's, it's very equivalent to us giving a handshake or giving somebody dap today. It, it, giving them the head nod, like, what's up? How you doing? It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a form of affirmation. It's a form of um, acceptance. So Judas uses this form of, uh, of acceptance to betray Jesus. Verse 49, so immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and he kissed him. Throughout the passage of Matthew, Matthew, Matthew sprinkles out little hints for us to be able to see. This term right here in verse 49, 49b, rabbi, pay attention to that. Because Judas is the only one out of all 12 disciples who refers to Jesus as rabbi. You know how the other disciples refer him? Lord, God, son of man. They, they have all these other titles for him. But Judas is the only one who constantly, time and time again, goes back and refers to Jesus as rabbi. He said it not just here, but he also said it in verse chapter 26, verse 25. When Jesus was giving out, preparing the Lord's Supper, and he, and he said to his his, his, his disciples, the one who dips his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. Verse 23. Verse 25 says, Judas, his betrayer, replied, surely not I, rabbi. Jesus told him, you have said it. And he, he, uh, Jesus said, you have said it. He told him. So this aspect of rabbi is not just an aspect of showing great respect. It's actually a, a, a form keeping Jesus to be common among men to his ultimate defeat. Notice Jesus' response in verse 50. He calls him friend. (laughs) Friend, Jesus asks him, why have you come? I love this because even in the midst of betrayal, Jesus gives Judas an opportunity to confess. (laughs) He gives an opportunity to confess and to be honest about why he came. This word friend here is not the friend, word friend that we think of in English. He's not calling him a friend like a close companion. There's different words in the Greek for this word friend. And the word friend that normally we use is philia, where we get the, we get the city Philadelphia that is known as the city of love. This is not the Greek word philia. It is actually another Greek word that actually refers to someone being a, 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 an acquaintance or being a pal or being an associate. There's no effectual or communal relationship that Jesus is showing to Judas here. It's almost like him saying, buddy or pal, why are you here? What are you doing here? He says, friend, why have you come? I love this because it reminds us, as we said earlier, that God, Jesus remains sovereign even when we think we're in control. Judas, in this, in this plan, in his mind, Judas has planned out every detail. He's, he said, listen, don't, don't just kill anyone. Kill the one that I kiss. Don't just pursue anyone. Kill the one that I tell you to go after. And we see from the text that while Judas thinks and believes that he is in control, while Judas thinks that his plans and his purposes 
are going to actually bring forth his desires, we actually see that God is using Judas' ambition and his pride for his own glory. That's what God often does with us when we think we're in control. (laughs) He often allows us in our pride and our arrogance to get ahead of ourselves, to think that we got it figured out, to think that we got it all together, and he allows our pride and our arrogance to motivate us and to push us to places that will only bring his name glory. And while just as uh, Joseph's brother in Genesis, who put him in the pit for him to be killed and to be destroyed, what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Beloved, if you are here today and you are struggling and you think that you're in control of everything in your life, let me bust your bubble and let you know you're not. You're not. You're not in control. And guess what? That's okay. Because you have a good, wise, kind, sovereign, omniscient, omnipresent God who is in control. And I'm not talking about some Jesus take the wheel theology, so please hear me when I say that. I'm not telling you to say, okay, God, here's my life. Just take it wherever you want to go. I'm talking about intimacy, talking about relationship. I'm talking about knowing your father and being so in line with him that even at the point of destruction, just like Jesus in this garden of Gethsemane, even at the point of destruction, you you can trust that God is still in control. I pray and I hope I pray and I hope that if this is your struggle today, that God will be merciful to you because it can be very painful for you to experience that God is in control and you're not. It can be a very painful experience. And I don't mean that in like you being destroyed. I mean that in you being humbled. I mean that in that when God humbles up, he he doesn't break us. He doesn't take, take us like a twig and just crack the, crack the stick. What God does when he breaks us, when he humbles up, he does it gently. He does it with intentionality and he does it with great purpose. He does it in such a way that only he can get the glory for it. Not your money, not your fame, not your notoriety. He does it in such a way that as you are going through your brokenness or your time of your rock bottom experience, you can look back to God and say, only you could have done this. (laughs) Only you could have brought me through. It wasn't my good looks. It wasn't my money. It wasn't my family. It wasn't my heritage. Only you could have brought me through. So family, please be encouraged. Jesus maintains his Sovereignty, even when we think we're in control. We also see this in verses 51 through 56, that Jesus maintains his sovereignty even when life seems to be out of control. Look with me in verses 51 through 57. It says these words, then they came, they came up, took a hold of Jesus and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all you take up, all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me here now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that that this must, uh, that, that says it must happen this way? 
verse 55. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come with me with swords and clubs? And if I were a criminal to capture me, every day I was, I was sit teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me then. But all this happened so that the writings of the prophets would be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and ran away. So God is sovereign even when we think we're in control, shown by Judas, but he also is sovereign even when life seems out of control. Notice with me, get the picture. The disciples were just asleep. And you remember what Jesus told the disciples? He says, pray so that you wouldn't what? Fall into temptation, right? Pray so that you won't fall into temptation. And they're human just like us, and that's okay. They decided to take a little nap. You know, most of us, that's how we do at night too. We be praying, and you be like knocked out. <laughs> Kids have to wake you up. Your roommate got to wake you up. Sometimes it'd be, it'd be like that. It's okay. It's okay. But notice even Jesus' sovereignty in that. He gave them the grace and mercy to know and to be prepared for something that they didn't even know they need to be prepared for. And the response that we see is a response that could have been avoided. Verse 51, at that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Now, John 18, Matthew was kind enough to kind of hide the identity of this person. But in John 18, we find out two things. We find out, one, the person and the disciple who took out his sword was none other than who? Peter, our boy Peter. I love Peter. Don't get me wrong. I, I love Peter because I, I got a lot of Peter in me. Peter does, he does things first and then thinks about it later. I can relate a lot to Peter a lot of times. Peter who was asleep, he wakes up and Peter is thinking he sees all the mob and he sees everyone around him in this dark place of Gethsemane. And Peter says, I know what I need to do. I need to save the day. (laughs) Because he already told Jesus, remember, he already told Jesus, listen, I will never betray you, right? He already said, I will never. So so this this is Peter's moment. And Peter takes his sword and he takes a swing at the man's head and he cuts off his ear. Which, yeah, Peter may have to go back to swordsmanship school or something like that because that was a bad miss. But he struck off his ear. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 52. Put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. I love what the gospel according to Matthew commentary speaks about this. It says this. It's found on page 6. 75. It says, the warlike perish at the hands of the warlike. And this is a most unfitting end for those who are servants of the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Repudiation of force and his acceptance of the way of the cross are important for his followers. It comes naturally to us to seek to impose our will on others. But that is not God's way. His way is the way of the cross with its repudiation of compulsion and its call for us to trust him. I love this because it reminds us of the real purpose is that, listen, even when we think that we're out of control, God is in control. And notice what Jesus points them to. He reminds them time and time again about the scriptures. This must happen 
because the scriptures have foretold it. It must happen this way. And he says it twice in verse 54 and also in 46. 56 says it this way, but all this happened so that the writings of the prophets will be fulfilled. Love this because it reminds us of Jesus' great care of the word of God. His great trust in God's word. And let, let, we will be remiss if we thought that Jesus had mustered up this strength on his own. Remember what when the disciples were sleeping? Do you remember what Jesus was doing? He was praying. He was praying. Praying is the ultimate form of submission before God. It is the only form of submission before God. That's why as we talk about maturity as a church, and we're talking about reading the scriptures as a church, that's why we just had a women's conference yesterday about praying, not just because we needed something to do, because we need a God to submit to. And the only way that you know you're submitting to God is if you are on your knees before him, confessing to him, thanking him, asking of him, showing gratitude to him. Prayer is the ultimate form of submission. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, don't try to come on this stage to preach a sermon. And don't try to get a guitar to lead worship. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, get before your knees before God. And understand him as Jehovah Jireh, your provider. Open your mouth and cry out to him when you're at your rock bottom situation. Don't try to fix it yourself. Don't try to call your friends. Go to God and let him be God in your life. That is the way of having true power and true authority in this life. Friends, I, I want to talk to you today because, listen, some of you may be at a rock bottom experience. And then whenever we had a rock bottom experience, we should allow our prayer life to match the experience that we're having. Think about it. One of the prayers Nick and I and Christina, we pray for you guys often, individually by name, in our staff meetings, at least twice a month, oftentimes more. But one of the prayers that I pray, especially for our families, is this. I pray that your children will see you on your knees now more than ever. That they will see you on your... It is a powerful thing for your children to see you praying to God. You know why a lot of times our kids don't believe in God? It's not just because of the world out there. It's because of the example that we don't show in our homes. When times get rough, we, we go to everywhere but God. We, we look to everything but God. We look to family and friends and we look to resources. Look to Jesus. He is sovereignly in control of every situation. I love how the black church says, it says, he may not come when you want him, but he'll be there right on time. <laughs> He may not come when you think he needs to show up, but I guarantee you, our God will not forsake you. He will not turn his back from you. 
Psalm 51, 17 puts it this way, a broken and contrite heart. A humble heart is something that God cannot resist. He cannot resist humility. He cannot. It's impossible. He would be, not be God if he would, if he would renounce you or turn away from you in humility. You want to draw near to God? Be humble. Seek him. Love him. Walk with him. And listen, there's a difference between walking with God, looking to his hands, versus looking to him in his face. A lot of times when we look to God, we look to God, give me God, I need God, provide God, and there's nothing wrong with that. But God isn't a genie, and God is not our Santa Claus. He is the sovereign king of the universe, and he deserves much more than you just asking him and begging him to give you things. Look in his face and see how beautiful he is. Look at his face and be reminded how gracious he is. Look at his face and be reminded of how he created you in his own, in his own very image in the Imago day. Give thanks and praise to our God, not just requests and supplications. There's nothing wrong with requests and supplications. But it's it's something wrong when when that's all we do is ask and not want to build a relationship with the one true living God. I thought I knew God at some point in my life, (laughs) but I had an experience in 2013 that brought me to my rock bottom experience. And I had a choice. I could jump ship (laughs) and and say, God, I'm done with you. But it was one of the first times in my life that I said, okay, God, this is hard, this is difficult, and it's impossible, and I'm going to allow you to walk through this with me. I'm going to submit myself to your authority, and I'm going to allow you to walk with me through this situation. Now, you may be thinking I'm saying something heretical when I say, when I say that, when I say I'm going to allow God to walk with me. What I'm saying when I say that is I'm going to humble myself to recognize the sovereignty and the beauty and the authority of God, because God is authoritative if I recognize it or not. He's good and he's sovereign if I recognize it or not. But I had to place myself under that banner of authority and say, okay, God, I'm going to recognize your authority through my hardship and through my difficult situation, and I'm going to ask you to walk with me through it. And listen, it was the best decision that I ever done in my life. Not because I got what I wanted, but because I got God. I got to see him for who he really is. I got to know him in his character. He wasn't just a God of my grandmother or my mother or a God of my pastor. He was my God who was, I was able to walk with and cry with and praise with. Rock bottom experiences are not meant to destroy you. Rock bottom experiences are there to make you dependent upon the one whom you should only be dependent upon, which is God Almighty. Learn to trust him. Learn to walk with him. Even when you think you're in control and even when your life is out of control. Lastly, we see the sovereignty of God. Even when you seek to maintain maintain control of your life with Caiaphas and and the high priest. I love this because it reminds us of the goodness of our God and King and his power and his majesty. 
It talks about this in verse 47. It says, those who arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Peter was following him at a distance right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they could not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two who came forward stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? Verse 43, but Jesus kept silent. Let's stop right there. I love what the commentary, again, of the Gospel of Matthew says about this in page 680. It says these words. It says, whether it was a formal trial or an informal inquiry, the first step was to bring Jesus before the Jewish authorities. And that was what those who had taken hold of Jesus did. Matthew says that they brought him to Caiaphas, and he was leading, he was a leading Jew and cooperating with the Romans. And there is no reasonable doubt that he was anxious to ensure that Roman rule continued untroubled so that his own position would remain secure. <laughs> So remember, we can trust God's sovereignty even when our, uh, we think we're in control, even when life is out of control. Lastly, we can trust God's sovereignty even when we seek to maintain control. One of the things that we see very clearly here is that Jesus had literally turned the world upside down. He was a man who affected every sphere of society, whether it was religious, social, or even political. And as a world changer, and as a man who was bringing forth a kingdom, the men felt that he had to be destroyed. I love this because it reminds us of the sovereignty of God, that God in his sovereignty is in control when we think we're in control. He's in control even when we are out of control, when we do things we shouldn't do. But he also is in control even when he doesn't say anything. Notice with me verse 63. These charges are being brought up before Jesus, but yet Jesus remains silent. And he remains silent not because he doesn't have anything to say. He remains silent because the truth and the person and the miracles and his character speaks for itself. When the truth is evident before you, you just let the truth speak for itself. So Jesus remained silent. Verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the son of God. Verse 64, he says this, you have said it. This was a uh, a very common term um, back in this time, in the uh, Near Eastern time um, when, when Jesus was living. And this term simply means um, you said it or um, it is as you said, or you, you said the word, or um, yeah, it, it, you know, it's, it's kind of as clear as day. So it's kind of an affirmation of what Jesus is trying to say here. Is this, as you say it is, so is it. That's what he's saying right here. He says, he continues in verse 64, but I tell you in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, listen, it's your word and it's not mine. You've said it, you've seen it, but my power still remains. I love Jesus because Jesus, a person who's truly in charge and a person who truly is sovereign, doesn't, you don't have to fight for your power or your authority. You don't have to fight for first place. You, you're, you're already in first place. <laughs> There's no one that can compete with you. So why fight for something that you already have? I saw, uh, I, don't, I don't do this often, but uh, often I saw this morning of a fighter from uh, the U, uh, U, UFC, I guess that's what it's called, who uh, won a title by disqualification. <laughs> Someone did a move that was not legal, and he was, disqual- he was a champion. He was disqualified. And as a result of this disqualification, the guy who seemingly got knocked out and got hurt got the title. <laughs> and the most amazing thing happened in that. The guy who got the title, he took it off his, he took it off his waist and just threw it down. He said, I don't want this. I didn't win it. I didn't beat the guy. The guy got disqualified. He's saying this title means nothing to me. You see, in this world, we have to fight for titles, right? We have to fight to be the best. We have to compete to see who's, at, who's the top dog. With Jesus, there's no fighting, right? How's the song go? Death cannot hold you, right? Veil tore before you. Um, you silence the boast. You silence those who boast. Um, before you, see, our God is sovereign even when we try to remain in control. Caiaphas and his goons and the high priest and everyone that was with him, they were not seeking justice. They were just looking for a verdict. They wanted anything to be able to indict Jesus. And he calls him, he says in in verse 65, the high priest tore his robe and said, he has blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, you've heard the blasphemy. It's funny because Jesus actually never did blaspheme. To blaspheme at this time would to be say the unspoken name of Yahweh, to talk about or to say God's name or to equate one's self to God's name. Jesus did not do that here per se. He talked about how he, the Son of Man, was seated at the right hand of power, coming on the the great clouds of heaven. But yet, he he gets condemned for something, not just what he says, but also who he is. So what are our our point of applications? What, What do we want to take away from this? We see who Jesus is. He is sovereign. He is majestic, but as we close, I want to give you three things to remind us of who Jesus is not. Number one, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus was not a scapegoat. We see that in verses 47 through 50. Judas came looking for Jesus. No one else, not Peter, and John, not, Bethal, not, Matt, not no one else but Jesus. He came looking for him. 
He went so far as to actually approach him and give him a kiss on the cheek to make sure that the large mob that was with him wouldn't charge anyone else except for Jesus. You see, Jesus was not a scapegoat. A scapegoat is a person who's blamed for the wrongdoings of others, mistakes or faults of others. It's someone who takes the blame. Yes, Jesus took the blame for us, but he took the blame willingly, joyfully, humbly. He submitted himself to God's will and authority of his life. So he was not just a scapegoat. He was much more than that. The other thing we see in verses 51 through 57 is that Jesus was not a victim. A victim is someone who suffers unjustly. It's someone who's overcome by circumstances or situations that are outside his or her her control. And we see that Jesus is not a victim here. Jesus says, listen, Peter, put away your sword. Do you not think I can call on my father and he will send more than 12 legions of angels? One legion of angels is 6,000 angels. So what Jesus is saying here, I can call to my father right now and 72,000 angels would appear and handle this crowd. Jesus was not a victim. It's not just overcome by his situation. He wasn't one who was just suffering unjustly. And lastly, Jesus was not a martyr. <laughs> he was not a person who was killed because of his religious beliefs. He was killed because he claimed equality with God and he proclaimed that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It wasn't just simply beliefs that he shared, it was the life that he lived that caused his death before these men. So Jesus is not a scapegoat. He's not a victim. He's not a martyr. Look with me in verse 68. We'll see who Jesus is. It says, and they said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who is it that hit you? Love what the gospel according to Matthew says about this. It says this, it says, we should see in these actions the denial of Jesus' claim, of Jesus' claims. The spitting on him refutes the claim that he has authority. The blows show that he has no power. And the failure to prophecy as to who hit him is for them clear, uh, clear proof that he has no gift of prophecy about what will happen in the future. You see, while Jesus maintained all power, and while Jesus was perfectly sovereign in all he did, did, said, and how he lived, he still allowed himself to be beaten and to be scorned. And every hit and every beat for those men who thought they were in power made them think and made them assume that he had no power. But be reminded, those who have true power have no need to fight for those who don't have power and authority. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. Thank you for the gracious reminder of your great humility before the cross of Calvary. We thank you, God, that you are not a victim. You're not just overcome by the situations that were placed before you. God, you're not just a scapegoat. You're not just a martyr. 
God, you are our sacrifice. And we celebrate that today, that you have come and given up of your perfect and holy life in exchange for our imperfect lives. We praise you for that. Thank you for taking every blow and every hit, knowing, God, that you held every, all power in your hand. Thank you for showing us what meekness truly is. Meekness is is controlled strength. Help us as your people, as your children, to be meek. Help us not to operate out of wrath, out of anger, just wielding our power, overcoming anyone and everything that is in our way, but help us to grow in Christ-likeness, being meek and gentle and mild. Control our tongues, God. Use our tongues to edify and glorify one another in this church. Use our fingertips as we engage on social media to glorify your name and to expand your kingdom. Father, thank you that you are the embodiment of all that is true, holy, good, and powerful. You are the sovereign king, even when we think we're in control even when our life is out of control, and even when we're trying to maintain control, you are the sovereign king. We praise you in this way, in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time, we're going to celebrate by partaking of the bread and the wine that speaks to the sovereignty of our God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it and broke it, and said to those who were listening, take, eat, this is my body that is broken for you. Let us eat together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the same way, he then took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink of that cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus went on to say, but I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, Visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.